This is a news update on University of Portsmouth Research, brought to you by Life Solved. I'm Kate Daniel. Today I'm talking to Dr. Simon Colstow. He is a reader in bioethics. He's chair of the UK Health Security Agency's Research Ethics and Governance Group and chair of the Health Research Authority's Fast Track Ethics Committee. We're looking back over the last 18, 19 months of the COVID pandemic. The ethics of research, vaccine hesitancy, all of these issues which have just plagued the world are one of the many fronts of the COVID battle, which Simon and many people like him have been working at the forefront of. Let's hear how it's been for him. Thank you so much for joining us, Simon. You're welcome. Could we start by you telling me an overview of how you got involved in the first place in looking at what the government was doing, what the research community was doing at the beginning and the first few months of the COVID crisis in 2020? Yes, of course. So my background is actually in biochemistry. I did a PhD in biochemistry and then spent 10 years working in medical research. And while doing that, um, I saw the translation of some of our projects from the laboratory into actually giving it to human patients and, and doing human tests. And the ethical issues around that I found really fascinating. So alongside my biochemistry research, I started getting involved with ethics committees. I ended up doing a degree in philosophy as well because I thought the area was interesting. And slowly over time, my research moved from actually doing the medical research to looking at the way research was done. So now my sort of area of academic and research interest is in the research process when humans are involved. So everything from how do you come up with the right research questions to start with? How do you design the experiments? How do you choose the right methodologies? How do you conduct the research? How do you respect the autonomy and the dignity of participants? taking part in the research through to publishing the research and communicating the results at the end. So obviously when the pandemic then hit, one of the things that was really key is, well, how do we find out more about this disease? How do we do things like develop vaccines, develop other medications? How do we find things like whether or not lockdowns are going to work and all these other things that the government is putting in place? I sort of found myself being asked to to provide opinions and um, especially through the ethics committees, review a lot of the projects that we heard about. At the moment, here we are 18, 19 months into this pandemic, how difficult is it to untangle all of the ethics around human challenge studies? If you recall right at the beginning of the pandemic, the first British people to catch COVID were on cruise ships in the Far East. So when Public Health England at the time, they're now called the UK Health Security Agency, um, when they found out about people on the ships having COVID, they designed a whole bunch of protocols to basically go in and find out more about the condition. However, of course, when it comes to creating vaccines or creating drugs, quite often once someone already has COVID, it's too late. You can't use them in the experiments. So if you're going to test whether or not a vaccine vaccine works, you kind of need to give it to people before they then catch COVID. Because COVID was so infectious, some of the main studies that were conducted is you basically just give a couple thousand people a vaccine and sure enough, sooner or later, people will be exposed to COVID and and you can do those studies that way. And that was kind of the main way that the vaccine development was conducted. But that's not a very clean way of doing research. So, So looking at it from a methodological perspective, you don't actually have any control over who gets COVID, how badly they get it. So the cleaner way of doing the research is actually to intentionally infect a very, you sort of select a group of people you're interested in and intentionally infect them with COVID and then study the course of the disease. And then some of them you can give vaccines or a placebo, which is sort of like a dummy dose beforehand. So I think fairly early on in the pandemic, 
Um, although all this interesting results was coming in from an observational perspective, there was quite a lot of pressure from scientists. And in fact, there were actually members of the general public who were really keen to take part in research and contribute towards COVID research. And there was a group set up online which has a couple thousand individuals who have already volunteered to be intentionally infected with COVID for the purposes of research. So there was this sort of grassroots pressure to do these sorts of studies as well. And so the Health Research Authority put together a specialist ethics committee that I was asked to be involved with. And we spent a bit of time discussing the idea of intentionally giving people COVID with COVID because it was a new disease and because of things like long COVID, there were all these sorts of complications and not quite knowing the safety profile of that as well. The, the risk of those sorts of studies is reducing. I mean, from a medical and research perspective, do you think it will ever end, Simon? Are we, are we stuck with this now in some form or other for, for all time? Oh, well, I mean, COVID, um, well, coronaviruses, they've always been around. This particular one happened to be a very infectious one, which has obviously caused the pandemic. So I think coronaviruses will always be around. There will always be some sort of COVID type infection in the community. The difference is, is much like flu, we'll get to understand the risks better and we'll become more used to living with those risks. The single thing we are interested and in, we are worried about is the hospital occupancy rates, especially in emergency departments and also acute care. We'll We'll all have our COVID boosters every year and it'll just be something we learn to live with so long as we can ensure that our health services can cope with that extra burden. Yes. I'm very confident that the research has been done has been at, at more or less exactly the same standard as usual but because of that prioritisation we've been able to get, get to answers more rapidly than before. That, that's very a really good explanation and very reassuring I would imagine and yet Still, there is a portion of the population, I don't know how big it is, Simon, but the anti-vax faction, if you like, that there is a, a body of people there who are not reassured. Is that of any concern? Great. So, so this is actually a really interest, interesting philosophical area as well. So when I'm teaching professional doctorate students, PhD students about research, I always say to them, you realise designing the experiments and doing the experiments is only 50% of research. The other half of research is about communicating your research in a way that's actually usable and acceptable. Whenever any new discovery comes about, it's really important to communicate it with other people. And then it's also really important to, to provide the evidence in such a way that it is actually usable. You know, there's no point coming up with a cure for cancer if you don't tell anyone about it. And if clinicians aren't interested in using it, you know, it's, it's, it's completely pointless. There's always been a certain amount of resistance to new things in the population. There's, there's a fun quote I heard that um, something like anything invented before I was 20 is new and exciting. Anything that was invented when I was 20 to 40 is the way that the world works and anything invented after I'm past the age of 40 is not to be trusted. <laughs> but there's, there's, this, there's this dialogue, this public dialogue that's really important. Now if you take something like vaccinations, the idea of a vaccine is you're taking a drug, a chemical of some sort, and you're injecting it into your body. And people are concerned about the integrity of their bodies, you know, you know rightly we're concerned you know, what we eat, what we put into our bodies. So it's quite an unnatural thing to inject something into your body. So you can understand how people might be a little bit concerned about that sort of thing. And if you look at back at the history of vaccinations, there's always been a 
certain level of, of public mistrust and discomfort around vaccines. That goes all the way back to Edward Jenner, you know, 300 years ago. Um, more recently, 20 years ago or so, we had the, had the Andrew Wakefield MMR, which was a case of, of direct scientific fraud, but that caused all sorts of problems around the MMR vaccine. So it's no surprise, I think, that people are concerned about the ideas of vaccinations. But the really important thing to communicate is that alongside fresh water and sanitation, vaccinations have saved more lives than any other health intervention that humanity has done. If you ever want proof that vaccinations work, what we've seen with COVID is proof that vaccinations work. You know, we've seen tens of thousands, if not millions of lives saved with vaccinations from COVID already. So it's that element of sort of science communication as well, acknowledging why people might be concerned about these things and then trying to communicate. Simon, could you place the work you've done with the two ethics committees that you chair into some context nationally and the fight against COVID. Ever since the Declaration of Helsinki in 1964, the World Health Organization has has mandated the use of ethics committees to review human participant research. And within the United Kingdom, we have had the Health Research Authority for the last 10 or 15 years that have done a very good job of establishing a national network of research ethics committees to review all studies that involve human participants. And so that system was in place prior to the pandemic and of course once the pandemic happened more funding was given to the HRA to try and prioritise the relevant Covid research. So there was a lot of us involved in research ethics who were keen to help in any way that was possible. There's thousands of people on research ethics committees involved with public health, um, clearly involved involved in hospitals, you know, involved in the communication of, of research and public health that have been involved with this. And I've taken a, a small part in, in chairing a couple committees and, and being involved with Public Health England. I think it's been really impressive how the research community has sort of really pulled together over the last few months to years to try and get the research done and communicated in appropriate ways, although there's been all these sort of interesting twists to the story that's happened along the way. Given your intense involvement and hours and hours and hours spent working on this for the last nearly two years, it just strikes me, I wonder what you'd be doing if COVID hadn't happened. It's very much sort of looking at this process of conducting science and looking to see, well, how does an external review from people who are concerned about ethics issues, where should that fit into the process and how can that be used most effectively? Now, prior to COVID, there's clearly lots and lots of research going on. Um, You know, cancer research. In fact, one of the sad things about COVID is that we think that it's probably put cancer research back about 10 or 15 years because many of the people who were working on cancer research have switched their focus to COVID and that's that's put research projects back. So there's lots and lots of research out there that needs to be done. There's always lots of research happening. Yes, the pandemic has been interesting. It's it's shown ways that the system can work. So that's been really sort of fertile in, in terms of coming up with ideas, especially for me and understanding how the system works and you know how to make suggestions about how we can change or in, in, improve the process. I think if COVID hadn't have happened, it would have been very much focusing on the sorts of research, the sort of bread and butter, the normal everyday type of research and, and chipping away more slowly and consistently rather than the sort of big jumps that we've seen with the pandemic. If vaccine passports are to become inevitable, which it appears already that they are, I've been to a few events where I've had to show my COVID pass on my phone. How do people who haven't, for whatever reason, can't have the vaccine or don't want to and, and, and hold fast to that, is there a risk we become a two-tier society? Vaccine passports are a temporary measure 
The important thing is whether or not hospitals are able to cope with the burden of COVID on top of all the other diseases that we can cope with. So if we can get vaccination rates, if we can get treatments for COVID to the point that the hospitals are able to cope, then I think we won't need to see things like vaccine passports because just our sort of normal community control of the infection will be good enough to, to avoid that being a problem. So I'm very much of the view that vaccine passports will probably be a thing for maybe six months to a year. But I think as we get better vaccines, as we get better treatments for COVID, it will become as unnecessary as having a vaccine passport for influenza, for instance. We, we never think of having a vaccine passport for flu, and that's because we're enough on top of that disease that that hasn't been an issue. So I'd be very surprised if anyone was talking about vaccine passports maybe four or five years from now. Thank you for listening. To find out more about news, events and research from the University of Portsmouth, go to port.ac.uk or follow us at Portsmouth Uni on Twitter and Instagram.